chillin' and a you will hear about the eliminating of the negative and a accent on a positive. And gather round me, chillin', if you're willing, and sit tight while I start reviewing test, the test. attitude of doom. Is this thing on? Oh, yes, it is. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird and Friends. Hello, Frugalistas, and welcome. Listeners will know that I'm a huge fan of the Buy Nothing Project, and in fact, I'm an administrator of my local group here in Canberra. I rarely tell people what to do, but I usually strongly suggest that they consider joining their local group. Today, I am so privileged and excited to interview two special guests who have come from Bainbridge Island in Washington State, U.S., and that is the two founders of the Buy Nothing Project movement, Liesl Clark and Rebecca Rockefeller. Their book, The Buy Nothing, Get Everything Plan, is being released in Australia this month. I've had an advanced read and I am hooked. And at nearly every page, I find myself thinking, yes, I just so get this. It's so much more than just free stuff. It's a whole movement for change. Welcome, Liesl and Rebecca. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. We're thrilled. Thank you. Now, I understand both of you ladies have been quite busy recently and not just with giving and receiving stuff. Yes, I'll, uh, this, this is Liesl and I'll just say absolutely. I think with the current international pandemic, <laughs> global pandemic, and then certainly with regards to human rights issues, there's, there's a lot of work to do. Can I ask? What are you doing on human rights issues right now? What is it that you feel really passionate about? Well, this is Rebecca and I will. Um, we are working right now within the Buy Nothing Project movement to really address the systemic racism that's present in our documents and in our internal structure so that we can do our own dismantling of the systemic racism that we have unintentionally replicated and perpetuated within this project that Liesl and I care so deeply about. And it's so important to us that we do this work because our vision for the Buy Nothing Project movement is really one at its core that is inclusive and equitable, that includes everybody in every neighborhood around the world. And in order for that to happen, we really do need to take seriously issues of racial justice and all sorts of social justice as well, so that they're, we're making it possible for people to participate fully and on, on equal footing with each other. And we're really lucky to have a great number of people of color, Black, Indigenous, and people of color who are really calling this out and helping us to see where we have made mistakes in the past and giving us a chance to pitch in and do the work that we need to do. I'm really surprised that you said that because to me, By Nothing has always been a very inclusive and diverse community, yet you've identified areas where there's unconscious or conscious bias. Definitely. Yeah, I think a really obvious one would be that I think a lot of people can see easily is the way that from the very beginning, we have encouraged people to meet up in person and give and receive and share with each other on their front porches. 
And that's something that people with white privilege in the United States can do really safely. And it's something that black people in America cannot do safely. African-Americans are targeted, as we can see, by the police system and by other white people and are frequently in literal danger for their lives if they go into a neighborhood where they don't live or sometimes even in their own neighborhood to pick a gift up from a neighbor's porch. So that's the sort of thing that is considered a, a white norm that doesn't serve everybody equally. It doesn't, it's, it's endangering people for us to encourage that kind of meeting. So we're trying to bring an openness to the discussion and encourage people to really talk about what, how they can give and receive and share safely and be connecting with each other and really building these sort of network of interdependence that really should be happening within and every buy nothing gift economy. We want people to be able to rely on each other. And as part of that, you really do have to feel safe. You have to be safe and, and trust each other to do that. I could add to that by saying, I think Rebecca's example is excellent because even the words porch pickup, which are which is sort of a terminology that you might find in any in a lot of Facebook like free stuff groups, and that is implying that you have a porch. Mm-hmm. It's not very inclusive of communities that may be in more urban environments and where you might live in a building where there's no front porch. There's certainly not a picket fence and. There might not even be a doorman, right? Obviously, so for for you to go in to pick up something or to uh, to receive from someone, there's not really a public or or a place that's just as easy as going to someone's front door. Which we're realizing that all of that language, we need to look at it more closely. We need to parse out every word and and look at the biases that are therein. Yeah, they're very good point. And I must say, I live in an apartment now. I used to live in a house and it was much easier when I could just leave things out the front. And now that I think of it, most of my communities have been white middle class and I've never really thought about it. And I guess that's the thing, isn't it, with unconscious bias? You just sort of think everything's fine because everyone's just like you and you don't really think differently. Exactly. And one of the things... I've been grappling with a little bit this year on my own challenge of giving away items, which is now going to be a thousand items, which is not a lot, I know, and we'll get to the amount of things that people have in their house later. But the thing I'm grappling with is how you sort of get out of your own bubble. Like it is so easy to give things within your hyper local, but how do you give things meaningfully that is beyond? But I think there is still something really significant about giving within your own community first. Yeah. So, I mean, I think part of the reasoning behind that is that our homes tend to be where our stuff is. And that was an easy place for Rebecca and I to start with regards to providing some initial parameters for, for the Buy Nothing project. But I would agree it gets more interesting when we think about how can we share more in our everyday lives, even well outside of our homes, within our various other spheres of influence around our places of work. I mean, we're all quite insular now because of the pandemic. So, mm. so it's hard to even think beyond our homes right now because we're really not venturing out beyond our homes. So it is, it is a natural place. But I would imagine in the future, you know, when you're traveling, there might be, if it's, if it's ingrained in our behavior, 
because we started from our homes and sharing from our homes, then we might feel more comfortable when we're traveling to to have, and I I mean, you know, if we're traveling even like locally, to just sort of carry with you some of the things that you might have in excess, like from your garden, I've started to do that. Or if I have, you know, I have chickens. So if I have an extra dozen eggs, I will throw them in the back of my car and who, you know, I might just end up seeing someone that, uh, you know, in, in town, if I do have to go grocery shopping. And so I might see someone and, and offer them my eggs because they're just right there. So nobody would have to travel to my home to collect them. And it just, it saves on, on the carbon footprint, et cetera, where I think the more we're ready to share, the more we're ready to ask. Mm. I think the more, the more it will happen outside of our home. There's so many things to unpack there. Let's start with talking about this pandemic and how it's changed giving. And I know, Liesl, you in particular have put out some good guidance and you've got a unique kind of thing of thinking about putting things together for after the pandemic? Well, I mean, I can say, I think you're getting at maybe the fact that, well, as soon as this started to happen, I realized, oh, I I had things that I was planning on giving away, but I wanted to sort of stave that off for a little bit because I needed to get to that comfort level of knowing how to share more safely with regards to people coming coming to our home or whether they might be in harm's way if I'm sharing with them. So I just created a pandemic box and just meaning (laughs) I just started to put things into um, a box that I kept by the door. It was nice for the kids to see it because then they knew that if there's some clothes that they've outgrown, it could go in there and things that they were sort of cleaning out their rooms, which a lot of kids have done during this time. And a lot of things got collected into the box to give away at a later date. We've already reached that later date. We're at phase two of our state, Washington State's reintroduction post-COVID-19. And a lot of us call it 1.5 because we're being very cautious and Mm. uh, that uh, I've been able to start to share again. And we have new protocols with regards to that and just you know, people washing things off and cleaning them with disinfectants before they put them out at their door. And then someone may come and pick it up. And then of course they they wash their hands, but then maybe they don't even touch it or use it for three, four days. So there's a lot of that going on. Mm, it's really important because you want to give from the heart. And it's hard when you think that something you're giving might end up being dangerous. Yeah, that's the that's the challenge. And I, we've seen a lot of people finding other ways to meet that desire that we each have in our heart to share and to be helpful and useful to each other right now, because these are very stressful times for everyone. So we've seen people offering to pick up groceries for people who are in high risk categories who really shouldn't be going out to the store, not even mm. during the high risk you know, hours. Now we're picking up prescriptions, offering entertainment through Zoom calls, like little conference, not conference, but concerts or songs, storytelling, classes, board games, all sorts of things. So it's been exciting to see people find very, very safe ways to connect and to stay socially connected, even though we're physically separated. We've been excited to see that happening in Buy Nothing groups all over the world. And it's interesting to see as the pandemic was first spreading around the world, we would see it hit communities and everyone would go into the sort of stunned lockdown mode for a few mm. days, just trying to figure out how we're going to help each other through this. And then 
people just basic that combination of that innate human generosity that we have and our innate human curiosity and creativity really came together and started giving rise to all of these new ways of connecting, which is good to see. Yeah, it was really exciting. And I think that people's mental health and well-being during this has been so important. It's sometimes even more important than the pandemic itself. And communities and how to keep them alive when there isn't physical contact is really important. Yes. yes. And one thing we're seeing in the groups too is that when you have a, a local gift economy that's already established before something like this happens, whether it's a natural disaster or a health crisis, public health crisis, when you have a local gift economy established in your community, you tend to know your neighbors. You tend to have gone through the exercise of making note of who your immediate neighbors are, as well as those that might be within walking distance even further. So that's one other benefit that we've seen is that people could quickly rally, as Rebecca mentioned, around any of our elderly neighbors who may need help picking up prescriptions because nobody wanted them to go into the stores. <laughs> and, you know, this is an easy thing if I'm going into the grocery store that has a pharmacy, then I could do that. But I, I knew who to, who to ask if they needed that help. And I'm really grateful for that knowledge. I wouldn't have known the single mother who down the road, who has lots of little children, but isn't able to go around and pick up items with so many kids in the car, for example, or just knowing people's circumstances a little more. And uh, it enables a little bit of a more kind of relaxed way of just asking, hey, can I do this for you? I'm going here. Or I can also ask someone that I know is going to pass right by my house when they're going to do something. <laughs> so I could do the same. It wouldn't be an extraordinary thing to ask for. I think you've really touched on some important things. Here in Australia, we had the horrific bushfires, which were going on for about several months before we went into lockdown. We had a couple of weeks of clear blue skies and things were looking good, and then we went into <laughs> lockdown. And what was interesting during that period was the tremendous community outpouring of support. But people often didn't know what to give or what to do. And in some cases, communities became overwhelmed by stuff. They couldn't meet in community halls because they're filled with stuff that they didn't actually need. So that listening about what people actually need and how best is to support them, rather than just assuming that you should support them in a certain way. I don't know if that's something that resonates with you. Oh, oh yeah. So much. <laughs> very, very deeply. We we really believe strongly that person-to-person -person giving is much more effective than, let's say, sort of more institutional relief agencies. Obviously, relief agencies have their purpose, and but we've found that there's been unique ways to share uh, with each other when we know who the recipient is. So the recipient can, and I'll let Rebecca sort of explain this a little better because she's had some interesting stories too of how recipient might be able to ask for something very specifically that is meeting like their own children's needs or, you know, oh, who knew, but this is a community that would love musical instruments. We lost our, our way to share joy through music making. And so who would think that during a relief effort that there would be a community of people over here that would know that and then collect those musical instruments and offer them up to the other community? Yeah, the musical instrument story came from the fires that we had here in the States, not too far from us down in California. It was paradise, I think, wasn't it, Liesl, that that yeah. fire 
Mm-hmm. Um, and after just in the immediate recovery of that, there were some people who put out the call and people, paradise residents who were displaced, who had lost everything. And that was what they really wanted. They wanted to be able to make music together. So we up here through different sort of sister by nothing projects, we were able to collect those up and send them down. And we've seen the by nothing project, the international network of by nothing projects do this in a number of natural disasters, all different kinds of things. We've had people sending in um, after, I think it was the landslide that there was not too far from us in our state that decimated an entire neighborhood in just seconds. Oh my goodness. And yet it was just a dreadful tragedy. There were a lot of people who didn't lose their homes completely, you know, or didn't lose their lives, but lost most of what they owned. And we were able to get very specific. Like we have a teenage boy who wears a size 12 shoe and he would like a pair of black tennis shoes and he would like dark green hooded sweatshirt. The kind of specific relief and assistance that we can give each other that you're never going to get from these large packets of things that, that makes it makes people feel seen and loved and cared for mm-hmm. when you get exactly what you want, especially when you've had your entire life upended. I think that kind of that kind of assistance is tangible assistance in the form of a sweatshirt, but it's also one that says, like, we heard you. You know, I think your word listening, Serena, is so key. It's like we we heard you ask for this thing and we have found what you wanted and here it is. I think that's the sort of assistance that people can provide each other through the buy nothing gift economies that's so different than what happens elsewhere. And Rebecca, I want to ask a bit about your own receiving and giving because I understand you had a period of time where things were very tough for you. Yeah. So when we went into this and Liesl and I started the very first buy nothing group here. The very first version of it was a potluck. We called it a potluck in the park. Um, Every Saturday morning before our farmer's market opened, we invited people to come to a picnic table and meet us there and bring whatever they had in excess from their own homes. And when we did that, I was a, a freshly a single parent with no employment and two kids that I needed to feed. And I was signed up for all of the government support programs that they have here, which were not enough. And so I was literally hungry myself. And I had two growing children to feed and no way, you know, no job to do this with. The entire process of applying for the government assistance programs here is incredibly humiliating. I don't know what it's like in Australia, but in the United States, it's really geared towards this whole system that makes you just feel like a leech on society. It's invasive personal questions. It's a really humiliating, dehumanizing process to go through this. And it made me feel awful to have to answer these questions about myself and Mm. the circumstances that I found myself in, not through my own choices. It was just something that was sort of visited upon me. I really wanted a way to connect with my community in which I could get the things that I needed, but also give something so that I wasn't always just receiving and I wasn't receiving in this framework that put me below somebody else Mm. that I wanted to be on an on an even field and to be able to say look like I foraged these greens in our park and I can share them with you and someone else would have protein that I could feed my kids or bread that they had baked and it was 
my foraged greens were of equal value to the bread that other people bought or the, the yogurt that Liesl made. And so it, it was a way for me to exist as a member of the community and, and to sort of view myself as someone who was useful as a giver as well as as a receiver. And that was, that I think is the key to me. That's one of the, the things that drew me to this project was the idea that I could provide everybody with that experience to be able to both give and receive and to do it without that power dynamic that says the haves are more important and better than the have-nots. Like we are all haves and we are all have-nots. At, at different points of our life, the balance is different. And also there are things all of us want to have that we don't have. Probably 1% of the world doesn't have that problem, but most of us do. You know, the vast majority of people every single day both have an excess or a bounty of something and something that they would like to receive. And I, and I wanted us to be able to see each other as equals in a community, not as not on these different levels of power. That's really significant. The fact that you really wanted to also be giving, not just receiving was something that I felt was just so powerful when I read it in your book. Yeah, I think it's because, I mean, I think we're all told that <laughs> at least in American culture, there's this sort of idea that people are self-centered and we're all just out for ourselves and that at the core, we're not generous. And I don't find that to be true at all. I think if you look at human history way back to the very beginning, we're a social species. We're wired to care for each other. We're, we're wired to take care of each other and to rely on each other. And part of that is giving. It's a deep-seated impulse. I mean, gift giving, a lot of the times the giving of a gift is the most fun part. It's more than receiving. Like the giving away, we, we have a need to give to each other. And I, I think especially when you feel like there's an imbalance, which I did at that point in my life. I needed so many things that I couldn't provide. But the thing that I was really missing was that part of my identity as a giver, as someone who had bounty, as someone who was, you know, had that safety and that privilege, I guess, to give. <laughs> I agree. Giving is so significant. And on that note, Liesl, Perhaps you could share some of your experiences in the Himalayas and Nepal. Yeah, my family, meaning my my husband and I, I'm a filmmaker and he's a climber explorer, I guess you could call him. <laughs> and we've been working with the government of Nepal for years, working with a team of Nepalese scientists and an international sort of multidisciplinary team, inventorying very high cliff caves in the Himalayas. And these caves are very interesting because they were carved by humans hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. And very little is known about them because they're really difficult to access by human beings. So it was a big mystery. Why were they carved and what was in them and how were they used? What were they used for? So we have been, it's an archaeological expedition. And over the years, we've been documenting and inventorying each and every cave that we've been able to gain access to for the government of Nepal. And for example, my job would be to help to photograph and provide the details of the sort of the mapping of the cave caves, as well as the quote inventory. So what we found is a lot of the caves were used as mortuary caves by the local populations up to some as old as 3000 years ago. 
one set of caves, another one short of about 2,000 years old. And so these were people who were buried up in the high, high caves, and we've uh, had a team, an a bioarchaeologist with us who was able to determine a lot of really interesting data about how the people lived back then and how they survived and what were the material goods that were buried along with them, which is a very important ritual component that mm. tells us a little bit about who they were. So our main agenda has been to collect their DNA. Of course, I don't do it and my husband Pete doesn't do it, but he does it under the sort of watchful eye of the archaeologist. Sometimes the caves are too, just too difficult for the scientists to get into. So then he would go and then they would be on remote video and they would sort of coach him and train the team of climbers who are all Himalayan climbers, sort of high angle um, rock climbers. And so they would come back down and bring teeth. And so inside your teeth is your DNA. And it's probably the safest place for DNA to be stored. And so we would collect the, we'd be able to extract ultimately the DNA. We didn't do that. That was done in a lab ultimately in Germany and also in the US. And so what we've learned is sort of not only where the people came from, a lot of them were East Asian. So they came from sort of over in China and Tibet and crossed over through Tibet. And the reasons why we're interested in this and the material culture that's with these early peoples, we also found some evidence of people coming from sort of more on the Western side and goods coming from like Persia, even as far West as Persia. Wow. And then coming down. All of these goods coming, there, was, there were gold masks, and there was even silk coming from China, and uh, all different kinds of metals, every kind of metal, from copper to bronze, and gold, of course, and iron, and uh, horse tack for, you know, these were people who, who had horses. So it helped us to learn that these were people who moved goods between their cultures. And this is how they survived was that they also raised their own animals and they grew their own crops. So we, we could tell from their teeth and from their own health and how their bones were doing. We learned how some of them died, but we could tell what their diet was and they were eating grains growing, you know, which is amazing. They were sort of agrarian, but also pastoral. They had animals, they had bovids. And so these were people who were trading and sharing, sharing their goods with other people sharing their goods within their own community. And for their own cultural survival, we don't know exactly what they did back then, but you can get a little bit of a picture into how a people survived back then. They were making their own goods and they were sharing amongst, amongst themselves and with other cultures. And so the people who live there now, there are no shops in town and they're trading with Tibetans across the border and their goods that are coming up from the South, from the Indian subcontinent. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of a similar picture I mean, we're not going to just say, oh, it's exactly the same because, of course, things change. But there are no roads, there are no, no vehicles going to this part of the world, to this village. It was a really a real eye opener to discover how a people could take care of each other from how they cared for their communally cared for all the animals in the village and how there would be people who had looms who would make the, the footwear for the community and still do. The weaving is still going on. And I learned a lot from just living there summer after summer with the community and seeing how much they shared with each other. So whenever we would share anything with them, they would want us to sort of break everything up into equal piles for each family. Mm. And there were 17 households. And so if I realize, oh, well, this household has just small children, we'll put all the baby clothes and the children's clothes in that pile for that family. And I was 
promptly informed that that really isn't how they wanted it done. They really, this village was really clear that they needed everybody to have equal amounts of all the baby clothes and all of the men's shoes, just break it up evenly. And when I asked why, because that didn't make any sense to me, they said, oh no, it makes perfect sense because we all then have, we have the ability then, this family that has no children has the ability now to share those children's clothes with the family that does have children. And it gives them a connection to that family. It gives them a chance to be the gift givers. So the gift giving and the receiving is so important. And so, you know, we have a term that is a social term that social scientists use called social capital. Mm -hmm. So that was a chance for one family to have that social capital of giving toys and children's clothing to the family that had children's clothing and that had children. And then that family was able to give some shoes, men's really big shoes to um, to another family that had a couple of sort of full grown boys that needed those shoes. And so it was, it was lovely to watch the sort of gift giving going on. And some of them, they didn't do it immediately. They were like, mm, I'm just going to wait because I'd <laughs> like to, you know, when a family has a baby, and then I'll be the one who can show up and give give these baby clothes to the family. And then I'm integral and I can be a part of that. And it's lovely. And this is who we are. And this is how we do it. And it was a real eye opener for me. Wow, that is so different. And can I ask, because I know in your book, you talk about just how much stuff the average family has. The average household, say in the US, how much stuff do they have in there? Oh God, we're going to have to go ahead, Rebecca. We're going to have to look oh, up. Oh, I not Liesl's like the one who remembers all the numbers. <laughs> and I'm so... I didn't write them down either. Horrible with them, even though they're in the book. <laughs> But there's a lot, right? Yeah. I mean, thousands of objects. There was a team of archaeologists who went who from the University of California who, who literally did that. And they did a kind of a modern study and counted up all of the only visible objects. They didn't even include what was inside drawers. Wow. It was just what would be visible. Serena, I think you're going to have to pull that one out. But I think it, it was like over two. It was a lot. I don't know. <laughs> several thousand objects in just a few rooms. It was just outrageous. But what we like to say is like, there were two eye-openers. The first I really loved is there were, they found a direct correlation between the number of refrigerator magnets in a household with the number of objects in the household. Really? <laughs> so if you have a lot of refrigerator magnets, apparently that might be an indicator that you probably have a lot of things in your home. I don't know. That was one correlation. The other was just their observation that we are so overstuffed a lot of countries are and people in their homes are so overstuffed that we then have run out of places to store things in our homes and homes that do have like garages, right? There's, there is the phenomenon of the storage facility. Now mm -hmm. people are renting storage, but then if you have a garage, you can't even park your car in the garage in a lot of our homes because we're storing so much stuff. It's crazy, isn't it? I know people like that and it's like, really? You've got that much stuff? Would you even know where to look to find something if you needed it? Well, and then that's the irony is then you go out and you just buy it because you're not able to find it. It's underneath the piles and piles of things. So it's an interesting read. Any of these studies that have been done on households and who's managing the stuff, the women. It tends to be the women who manage a lot of women, the women in the households who are managing what comes in and what goes out. And you probably have a lot to talk about that, Serena. And so how can people find you and get involved in Buy Nothing? We have a website, buynothingproject.org. And so we have a, an email address that you, you can reach us at thebuynothingproject at gmail.com. 
And that's really a great way to reach us. But on the website, you can learn how to set up a group for your community. And you can also look up whether there's a group in your community. We have over 7,000 volunteers. And this really isn't just me and Rebecca doing all of this work. It's really the credit goes to so many people who are working behind the scenes to help facilitate the setting up of groups in any community worldwide that would like to have a local gift economy. And then if you are interested in talking about the book and the issues in the book, we also have a book website, which is the buynothinggetEverything.com. And we have a forum there where people can come in to talk about the different chapters and action steps in the book and just connect with each other and swap ideas. So you can find us sort of those two places online. Lovely. Thank you so much, both of you, for your time. I really appreciate it. Once again, I've been speaking with Liesl Clark and Rebecca Rockefeller, who are founders of the Buy Nothing Project, and they are author of the book, Buy Nothing, Get Everything Plan. Highly recommend that you read it. It's a fabulous book. And please join me on the Facebook group for more discussions on this and other topics. And make sure to subscribe to this channel if you like it, which I hope you do. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. You've been listening to The Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody. And of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. And myself, I'm Joseph McGrail Baitup. you got a Accentuate the positive feeling Minate the negative Latch on to the affirmative Don't mess with Mr. In-Between